Section 16 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E section sixteen chapter fifty three part four these reasons joined to so many occasions of ill-humour seemed to sway the greater number but to make the matter worse sir harry vane the secretary told the commons without any authority from the king that nothing less than twelve subsidies would be accepted as a compensation for the abolition of ship money this assertion proceeding from the indiscretion if we are not rather to call it the treachery of vain, displeased the house by showing a stiffness and rigidity in the king, which, in a claim so ill-grounded, was deemed inexcusable. We are informed likewise that some men who were thought to understand the state of the nation affirmed in the house that the amount of twelve subsidies was a greater sum than could be found in all England such were the happy ignorance and inexperience of those times with regard to taxes the king was in great doubt and perplexity he saw that his friends in the house were outnumbered by his enemies and that the same counsels were still prevalent which had ever bred such opposition and disturbance instead of hoping that any supply would be granted him to carry on the war against the scots whom the majority of the house regarded as their best friends and firmest allies he expected every day that they would present him an address for making peace with those rebels and if the house met again a vote he was informed would certainly pass to blast his revenue of ship money and thereby renew all the opposition which with so much difficulty he had surmounted in levying that taxation where great evils lie on all sides it is difficult to follow the best counsel nor is it any wonder that the king whose capacity was not equal to situations of such extreme delicacy should hastily have formed and executed the resolution of dissolving this parliament a measure however of which he soon after repented and which the subsequent events more than any convincing reason inclined every one to condemn the last parliament which ended with such rigour and violence had yet at first covered their intentions with greater appearance of moderation than this parliament had hitherto assumed an abrupt and violent dissolution naturally excites discontents among the people who usually put entire confidence in their representatives and expect from them the redress of all grievances as if there were not already sufficient grounds of complaint the king persevered still in those councils which from experience he might have been sensible were so dangerous and unpopular bellasis and sir john hotham were summoned before the council and refusing to give any account of their conduct in parliament were committed to prison all the petitions and complaints which had been sent to the committee of religion were demanded from crewe chairman of that committee and on his refusal to deliver them he was sent to the tower the studies and even the pockets of the earl of warwick and lord broke before the expiration of the privilege were searched in expectation of finding treasonable papers 
these acts of authority were interpreted with some appearance of reason to be invasions on the right of national assemblies but the king after the first provocation which he met with never sufficiently respected the privileges of parliament and by his example he further confirmed their resolution when they should acquire power to pay little disregard to the prerogatives of the crown though the parliament was dissolved the convocation was still allowed to sit a practice which since the reformation there were but few instances and which was for that reason supposed by many to be irregular besides granting to the king a supply from the spirituality and framing many canons the convocation jealous of like innovations with those which had taken place in scotland imposed an oath on the clergy and the graduates in the universities by which every one swore to maintain the established government of the church by the archbishops bishops deans chapters etc these steps in the present discontented humour of the nation were commonly deemed illegal because not ratified by the consent of parliament in whom all authority was now supposed to be centred and nothing besides could afford more subject of ridicule than an oath which contained etc in the midst of it the people who generally abhorred the convocation as much as they revered the parliament could scarcely be restrained from insulting and abusing this assembly and the king was obliged to give them guards in order to protect them an attack too was made during the night upon laud in his palace at lambeth by above five hundred persons and he found it necessary to fortify himself for his defence a multitude consisting of two thousand secretaries entered st paul's where the high commission then sat tore down the benches and cried out no bishop no high commission all these instances of discontent were presages of some great revolution had the court possessed sufficient skill to discern the danger or sufficient power to provide against it in this disposition of men's minds it was in vain that the king issued a declaration in order to convince his people of the necessity which he lay under of dissolving the last parliament the chief topic on which he insisted was that the commons imitated the bad example of all then predecessors of late years in making continual encroachments on his authority in censuring his whole administration and conduct in discussing every circumstance of public government and in their indirect bargaining and contracting with their king for supply as if nothing ought to be given him but what he should purchase either by quitting somewhat of his royal prerogative or by diminishing and lessening his standing revenue these practices he said were contrary to the maxims of his ancestors and these practices were totally incompatible with monarchy the king disappointed of parliamentary subsidies was obliged to have recourse to other expedients in order to supply his urgent necessities the ecclesiastical subsidies served him in some stead and it seemed but just that the clergy should contribute to a war which was in great measure of their own raising he borrowed money from his ministers and courtiers and so much was he beloved among them that above three hundred thousand pounds were subscribed in a few days though nothing surely could be more disagreeable to a prince full of dignity than to be a burden on his friends instead of being a support to them 
some attempts were made towards forcing a loan from the citizens but still repelled by the spirit of liberty which was now become unconquerable a loan of forty thousand pounds was extorted from the spanish merchants who had bullion in the tower exposed to the attempts of the king coat and conduct money for the soldiery was levied on the counties an ancient practice but supposed to be abolished by the petition of right all the pepper was bought from the east india company upon trust and sold at a great discount for ready money a scheme was proposed for coining two or three hundred thousand pounds of base money such were the extremities to which charles was reduced the fresh difficulties which amidst the present distresses were every day raised with regard to the payment of ship money obliged him to exert continual acts of authority augmented the discontents of the people and increased his indigence and necessities the present expedients however enabled the king though with great difficulty to march his army consisting of nineteen thousand foot and two thousand horse the earl of northumberland was appointed general the earl of strafford who was called over from ireland lieutenant-general lord conway general of the horse a small fleet was thought sufficient to serve the purposes of this expedition so great are the effects of zeal and unanimity that the scottish army though somewhat superior were sooner ready than the king's and they marched to the borders of england to engage them to proceed besides their general knowledge of the secret discontents of that kingdom lord saville had forged a letter in the name of six noblemen the most considerable of england by which the scots were invited to assist their neighbours in procuring a redress of grievances notwithstanding these warlike preparations and hostile attempts the covenanters still preserved the most pathetic and most submissive language and entered england they said with no other view than to obtain access to the king's presence and lay their humble petition at his royal feet at newburn upon tyne they were opposed by a detachment of four thousand five hundred men under conway who seemed resolute to dispute with them the passage of the river the scots first entreated them with great civility not to stop them in their march to their gracious sovereign and then attacked them with great bravery killed several and chased the rest from their ground such a panic seized the whole english army that the forces at newcastle fled immediately to durham and not yet thinking themselves safe they deserted that town and retreated to yorkshire the scots took possession of newcastle and though sufficiently elated with their victory they preserved exact discipline and persevered in their resolution of paying for everything in order still to maintain the appearance of an amicable correspondence with england they also dispatched messengers to the king who was arrived at york and they took care after the advantage which they had obtained to redouble their expressions of loyalty duty and submission to his person and they even made apologies full of sorrow and contrition for their late victory charles was in a very distressed condition the nation was universally and highly discontented the army was discouraged and began likewise to be discontented both with the contagion of the general disgust and as an excuse for their misbehavior which they were desirous of representing rather as want of will than of courage to fight 
the treasury too was quite exhausted and every expedient for supply had been tried to the uttermost no event had happened but what might have been foreseen as necessary at least as very probable yet such was the king's situation that no provision could be made nor was even any resolution taken against such an exigency in order to prevent the advance of the scots upon him the king agreed to a treaty and named sixteen english noblemen who met with eleven scottish commissioners at ripon the earls of hertford bedford salisbury warwick essex holland bristol and berkshire the lords kimbolton wharton dunsmer paget brokesville pollet and howard of Esrick were chosen by the king all of them popular men and consequently supposed nowise averse to the scottish invasion or unacceptable to that nation an address arrived from the city of london petitioning for a parliament the great point to which all men's projects at this time tended twelve noblemen presented a petition to the same purpose but the king contented himself with summoning a great council of peers at york a measure which had formerly been taken in cases of sudden emergency but which at present could serve to little purpose perhaps the king who dreaded above all things the house of commons and who expected no supply from them on any reasonable terms thought that in his present distress he might be enabled to levy supplies by the authority of the peers alone but the employing so long the plea of a necessity which appeared distant and doubtful rendered it impossible for him to avail himself of a necessity which was now at last become real urgent and inevitable by northumberland's sickness the command of the army had devolved on strafford this nobleman possessed more vigour of mind than the king or any of the council he advised charles rather to put all to hazard and submit to unworthy terms as were likely to be imposed upon him the loss sustained at newburn he said was inconsiderable and though a panic had for the time seized the army that event was nothing strange among new levied troops and the scots being in the same condition would no doubt be liable in their turn to a like accident his opinion therefore was that the king should push forward and attack the scots and bring the affair to a quick decision and if he were ever so unsuccessful nothing worse could befall him than what from his inactivity he would certainly be exposed to to show how easy it would be to execute this project he ordered an assault to be made on some quarters of the scots and he gained an advantage over them no cessation of arms had as yet been agreed to during the treaty at ripon yet great clamour prevailed on account of this act of hostility and when it was known that the officer who conducted the attack was a papist a violent outcry was raised against the king for employing that hated sect in the murder of his protestant subjects it may be worthy to remark that several mutinies had arisen among the english troops when marching to join the army and some officers had been murdered merely on suspicion of their being papists the petition of right had abolished all martial law and by an inconvenience which naturally attended the plan as yet new and unformed of regular and rigid liberty it was found absolutely impossible for the generals to govern the army by all the authority which the king could legally confer upon them the lawyers 
had declared that martial law could not be exercised except in the very presence of an enemy and because it had been found necessary to execute a mutineer the generals thought it advisable for their own safety to apply for a pardon from the crown this weakness however was carefully concealed from the army and lord conway said that if any lawyer were so imprudent as to discover the secret to the soldiers it would be necessary instantly to refute it and to hang the lawyer himself by a sentence of court-martial an army new levied undisciplined frightened seditious ill-paid and governed by no proper authority was very unfit for withstanding a victorious and high-spirited enemy and retaining in subjection a discontented and zealous nation charles in despair of being able to stem the torrent at last determined to yield to it and as he foresaw that the great council of the peers would advise him to call a parliament he told them in his first speech that he had already taken this resolution he informed them likewise that the queen in a letter which she had written to him had very earnestly recommended that measure this good prince who was extremely attached to his consort and who passionately wished to render her popular to the nation forgot not amidst all his distress the interests of his domestic tenderness in order to subsist both armies for the king was obliged in order to save the northern counties to pay his enemies charles wrote to the city desiring a loan of two hundred thousand pounds and the peers at york whose authority was now much greater than that of their sovereign joined in the same request so low was this prince already fallen in the eyes of his own subjects as many difficulties occurred in the negotiations with the scots it was proposed to transfer the treaty from ripon to london a proposal willingly embraced by that nation who were now sure of treating with advantage in a place where the king they foresaw would be in a manner a prisoner in the midst of his implacable enemies and their determined friends end of section sixteen chapter fifty three part four recording by richard carpenter in seattle washington